Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon and welcome to the 2021 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Kurt Bullard and I'm a first year MBA student at Sloan. It's my pleasure today to introduce our panel when the sports world stopped and how it came back to life, COVID and the future of sports. Today, our panelists are Dana White, president of the UFC, and Jonathan Kraft, president of the Kraft Group. Our panel today will be moderated by Jackie McMullen, senior writer at ESPN. The panel will run th for 35 minutes, and then we'll leave 10 minutes at the end for Q&A. Please use Twitter with the hashtag, hashtag sports after COVID, or using the, the panel on the side of the, uh, all, all in the loop. Um, questions will then be selected by the moderator, and then uh, Jackie will ask those. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it over to Jackie. Thank you, Kurt, and uh, welcome both Dana and Jonathan. Thanks for joining me today. So I do feel that uh, Rudy Gobert's positive test and then the NBA halting sports in midstream was sort of one of those moments that I ask everybody, where were you and what were you thinking when this happened? I have a sneaky suspicion both of you might have already had an inkling that this COVID-19 uh, virus was something that was gonna have to be reckoned with even before that day. So Dana, let's start with you. When did COVID enter your consciousness? Yeah, around that time that the NBA pulled the plug, uh, you know, we, we were hearing rumblings leading up to that. And uh, I guess it was like, you know, what everybody does is watch, oh no, the NBA just did it. Does that mean, you know, is the NHL gonna do it? Now is, are these guys gonna do it? Mm -hmm. And and the answer was yes, they all started to fall one by one. Uh, Jonathan, you, you told me off camera before we started that you, as for those who don't know, Jonathan's been associated with Mass General. I think you've been on their board of directors, Jonathan, over 12 years, somewhere over a decade um, anyway. And I, I have the privilege of being the board chair at Mass General. Right. Right, for the last couple of years. So uh, you, you told me off camera before that you were actually starting to already meet with doctors and I'm gonna, I'm gonna butcher the word, I can't say it, epidemiologists, I'm gonna try. So back, in, back in January, uh, right. the first couple of weeks of January, um, uh, some people in the hospital were getting to work on it and I was uh, brought into the loop. And I, I had actually heard a little bit about it just in the financial press from Asia, you'd read about it a little bit uh, but there were epidemiologists at, at Mass General who were starting to get extremely focused on it. And, and then, um, like Dana, I would say it was right around the Sloan Conference last year. I remember right. seeing Don Garber and, and, and Don said to me, you know, no, we're going to have to do something. We're probably going to have to go fanless. That's what Don was thinking at the time. And, um, uh, you know, it was one step further and the NBA did the right thing and they set the tone for sports and um, Dana did the right thing leading us all out because it could be done safely, but I assume that's where you're headed, so I won't jump there. Well, okay, and so that is the next thing. Uh, Dana, you made it very clear very early on that you were going to be the first sport back, that you were going to do it safely. And I think you also said you weren't going to have fans until you were sure it was 100% safe. Just take us through your thinking. You, so Rudy Gobert tests positive. The world stops. And everybody is in a bit of a panic. 
and the world's turned upside down. And then you say, well, we're coming back. And everyone's like, well, that guy's crazy. So take us, take us through, through your steps of getting, get, getting your sport out there. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start off with, it was the hardest thing that I've ever done. Uh, you know, literally uh, my, my lawyer and I would come in here every day to the office and, and work on, you know, a game plan, a venue. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm not kidding you. I live 20 minutes from my office. By the time I would drive home, my lawyer called me back and say, everything just fell apart. Every, every day this would happen. It, it was, it was, it was uh, insane, but I was willing to build a lab. I mean, I, I was like, let's, let's hire some scientists. Let's, let's build a lab. Let's, let's figure out testing. Um, and I've always had a relationship for the last uh, 15 years with, with the guys in Abu Dhabi. And they had testing going on over there. So I was in communication with them uh, about their testing and what they were doing. And, uh, you know, we started talking about building a bubble um, and, and figuring out how to do this thing safely. You know, we, we've conducted 40,000 COVID tests on athlete staff and, and, and other personnel since last May. And we've had a less than 1% positivity rate, which is, I think, the lowest or, or among the lowest in sports. And I ended up spending... $17 million on, on COVID related uh, operational expenses in 2020. So give us an idea of what some of those operational expenses are. You didn't build the lab. You mentioned that to me the other day. Uh, I imagine your financial advisor told you that wouldn't be the best, the best course of action. So what well, are some of the- Everybody thought I was crazy when, when, when we were talking about this stuff. But uh, you know, I, I, my, my mentality is always, there's a way to figure anything out. I, I just- Hiding at home has never been uh, an answer for me. That just doesn't make sense to me. I can't wrap my head around hiding at home from a virus. Um, so, you know, we, we dove in, you know, how would we get the athletes? How would we know that they're, that they're negative at home? We got to get them tested before they get on the flights. They come out to Vegas or driving or, or however they were going to get here. Um, then once they got here, we would test them again. We would put them inside the bubble. We rented out a couple of hotels here in Las Vegas that ended up becoming one was the bubble for the athletes. One was the bubble for, uh, personnel, staff members and, and, and people that, uh, you know, contract people we hired. And, uh, then, then you limit the exposure to the amount of people that they have until we start getting to the event related stuff. Everybody social distance, everybody wore masks, uh, you, you know, the, the list goes, I mean, the, the, the bubble, everybody knows the bubble now, but at the time that we were doing it, and our first one that we, that we did um, was uh, last May in Jacksonville. Jacksonville. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So we, we went to Jacksonville first, you know, Florida was very uh, progressive and aggressive with this. Like user I was, friendly, user friendly. Exactly. I like to call them. <laughs> uh, and, 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 but that, but that's the key. The key, the key to pulling something like this off is having these type of, you need the government to work with you. You, you, right. you need to work with these people and, and, and find uh, uh, solutions to these problems, work together and get it done. And, and we proved in Jacksonville that it could be done. I want to I want to go one step back because you did have an event lined up in April, actually, at Tachi Palace in California. For those who don't know, they were you were going to do it on Native American land. So therefore, it didn't apply to the state rules of California. At the very last minute, that got pulled. Can you explain to us why? Yeah, so we got it done 
it, it, it wasn't popular at all, <laughs> you know, no, with the media, not. with the media and, and, and some other people. And, you know, obviously part of going through something like this is being able to take the heat, you know, to, to, to take the bullets that you're getting from the New York Times and CNN and, and, and you name it. Everybody was guns a blazing at me. And, uh, you know, you got to have some thick skin to get through that. Uh, which I think a lot of the other leagues do not have. And uh, we got a deal done with these guys at Tachi. They did not, they did not cave to the governor or, or any of the politicians. They, they were willing to do the event with us. And then I got the call from ESPN asking me to, uh, to not do this event. They're like, listen, we're not asking you to not do events. You do what you want to do. And I, th I, you know, obviously, you know, these guys do a lot of business in California. And I think that uh, the governor over there put a lot of, a lot of pressure on, on ESPN to ask me to not do that event. Gotcha. Okay. So Jonathan, a little different in the NFL because you're dealing with separate owners, you know, Dana, this is Dana's baby. You've got to deal with. Well, hey, let me interrupt, but actually the craft group is are proud investors in the UFC. So we love what Dana did. And, and uh, you know, Dana embodies classic American entrepreneurship. And, and when you look back, he didn't put anybody in danger and he helped show the country you could move forward. And that, I, I, I you know, Dana just walked us through it. I actually think it's really important. I think that was a turning point for a lot of people because it showed there weren't fans there, but the point is, you know, our factories and our businesses that aren't in sports were working. Those people were going to work every day. And I think they did, I, that was important, I think, for a lot of people to see. And it launched us down a path to, to meaning the country down a path to realizing that it was important to start using ingenuity to figure out how to do some of the things we consider normal, but do them safely. So we're psyched about what Dana did, and uh, we're honored to be investors with him. Thank okay. you. Uh, so let's but let's talk about the NFL for a minute because you 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 can't. It was very determined very early. On, there couldn't be a bubble for NFL teams. Players were going to work and then going home and having dinners with their family, and as a result, inevitably, players were going to get COVID. Your own quarterback had COVID. Ezekiel Elliott, uh, Von Miller, a lot of of high profile players did again, small number. You had zero cancellations in terms of games, which I imagine the NFL is pretty pleased about, but there were some pretty dicey moments. So I wonder if you could take us through, you know, the Tennessee Titans, your own team, uh, yeah. you're going to go play in Kansas city. And then all of a sudden you're not. And then you fly. I think you flew the morning of a we game. We flew morning of, and yeah, we right. almost, we actually almost won even without cam. We were in it through halftime. And then anyhow, yeah. Um, I think we were really lucky in the National Football League because Dana started it. Then, you know, the MLS, the NWSL, the NBA, the WNBA, the NHL had their bubbles. We have a great chief medical officer, a gentleman named Alan Sills. And Roger, I think, came at this with the length of time that we had. And, and I, I, you know, watching Dana, watching the other things happen, um, he was always of the mindset and he told the teams we're playing a full regular season. And that, I think if you don't approach it with that mindset, people find excuses to not do it. 
Um, we were lucky in that by the time we started reporting in the middle of the summer, right. you know, beginning of August, there was plenty of testing. Our testing wasn't taking away uh, from the general public testing because I think that would have been an issue. I can tell you here, just on our campus, every all 32 teams installed trailers. We spent close to $6 million at the Patriots on testing just our the players and the coaches and the people who interacted with them day to day were tested on a daily basis. We wore contact tracing devices if you were in that part of the building so that if there was a positive and you were finding out on a rolling 24 hour basis, you could go back and truly if people were their devices, contact trace anybody who had been uh, within uh, six feet of them, uh, anytime you were, it showed up on these devices, you could measure it. And I think that's what prevented the outbreaks that, that, that otherwise would have happened. It was a combination of doing great testing. There wasn't rapid testing that worked on a PCR basis. So you had to use PCR tests that we were turning in about 12 to 16 hours but because you knew what your players had done during that window of time, you could go back. And the, 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 the Cam Newton situation, it came up at a, early in the season. I think if it had been later, we would have been even more confident in all of the protocols, meaning the league and the Patriots. But we did the right contact tracing. It determined who may have been other positives and you know, we ended up with only a handful of people testing positive on the team and we didn't really miss anything. So uh, I think that, you know, Roger for his stick to from the start and then Alan Sills who ran the medical operation, I think they did an extraordinary job. Look, it came at a huge cost because every team spending $6 million, you know, comes to hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, when you go across our league, but when you look at the value of the television contracts and from our say. perspective, when you look at what um, <laughs> when you look at what we wanted to try to do for the country, much in the way that Dana did and provide the entertainment, it just worked. So it's a long winded answer. That's all right. We like that, actually. So, Dana, there's a I think there was a pretty steep learning curve for everybody involved in this because the information was changing, the data was changing, the rules were changing even in our country. I had actually had an occasion to talk to a couple of your fighters. I wanted to talk to people who are both in Jacksonville and were at Fight Island. And you know, both of these fighters went through just fine in both places, but they did say that, you know, everyone was nervous, of course, that first event, Jacksonville, I'm sure you were. You had, you had a lot of players there, you wanted everything to go right. And they said, by the time they got to Fight Island in Abu Dhabi, it was, a, you were, you were really a true bubble in every sense of the word. Whereas say in Jacksonville, players would get tested, but then they could go out to dinner with their families and go back to their hotels. I wonder if you can just talk about that evolution that you saw and learned from to make Fight Island the, the sort of definitive bubble for your sport. Yeah, obviously we learned a lot with the first fight in Jacksonville it was our first one. Um, you know, we figured out how to tighten it up and, and, and make it better. Every time we, we, we did it, it got better and better. Um, but yes, once we got to Abu Dhabi, we were in a true bubble. I mean, there was no contact with anybody from the outside world. It, it, on Fight Island, we had our own hotel. It was only us. We had our own restaurants. 
Um, you know, everything was ours and everybody who was in there from the staff that worked at the hotel to the staff that would be at the restaurants that you would go to, everybody was tested, you know, multiple times a week. So, um, yes, it was, it was a true, unbelievably safe bubble. I think there were some unique challenges too, again, with your sport. Cutting is a big part of your sport. I, one of the athletes I talked to said you had huge uh, rooms within their hotel room with a sauna and a mat, a sanitized mat. I wonder if you could just explain to people a little bit about the allowances you had to make for the uniqueness of your sport, right? Yeah, yeah. So cutting weight, you know, obviously you, you go into a sauna. A lot of these guys use saunas and ride bikes in there or do whatever, sweat a lot. And, you know, it's about, it's about getting the weight off. So we made sure that everybody had their own personal space and their own everything that they needed. You know, I think I think we use those uh, personal saunas that you, you, you crawl inside. It looks kind of like a, a sleeping bag. Um, so, so we had all the tools that they needed, you know, because not only to create a, a, a safe environment for them to uh, come and get ready for the fight and to compete in, uh, but 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 also, uh, you, you know, to, to train right, to train properly and cut weight properly and and, and you know, Long before COVID was ever even heard of, the number one thing for us has always been fighter safety. Fighter safety is that 20 years. I mean, a lot of people look at the UFC and say, wow, that's, you know, that, that's, a, that's a, a, an aggressive, violent sport. And, and, and there's never been a death or serious injury in, in, in the 25 years of the UFC. Um, so, so health and safety is, is a big deal to us way before COVID. So, um, you know, COVID was just another addition uh, onto our fighter safety policy that, that, that we created. So I want to go back to the NFL, John, then a little bit too. I think the one thing, you know, again, when you're dealing with 32 teams, just so many players, it's almost impossible to keep the playing field level because of all the COVID. I think of the Denver Broncos. They had, you know, Jeff Driscoll, their quarterback, test positive. Turns out they were in a meeting without masks. So all three of the other quarterbacks are wiped out. So the Broncos play a game with a practice squad receiver playing quarterback who goes one for nine with 13 yards. Um, you could say that that was the Broncos. I wish we had been playing them that way. All right. <laughs> but I mean, and you could say that the Broncos broke protocols. So this is, but you know, the other one I think of too is the 49ers who lost their, a bunch of receivers in their tackle and then ended up having to play uh, their final five games in uh, in a different state in Arizona, which is a pretty big, you know, we, we always talk about players being, uh, you know, like routine is so important to them. So I wonder if that was just really a casualty of this unusual time for the NFL some, to some case. Well, I think everybody understood going in, people were going to have to deal with um, uncontrollable situations, but I think the league made it very clear if you followed the protocols, um, coupled with the fact that practice squads were almost doubled in size Standard, and the right. rule about moving people up and down the roster, if you had conducted your meetings in the way you were asked to under the protocols, the type of situation that happened, you mentioned the Broncos, I don't want to single them out, wouldn't have happened. But the league had made it very clear, if you don't follow the protocols, here's what we're doing. And if people have contact with each other and they're not wearing masks, everybody's going to automatically be deemed this. So you 
different teams took different risks. And I'm sure there was no team that was anywhere close to perfect. But what you didn't want to do was be that first team that got made the example of or had it happen to you where there was a positive and you weren't following the protocols because then you paid the price. It, It sent a message to everybody else how tight you had to be. But that was it. And, and I should have mentioned one other thing, too. You you had asked in my first question, you know, the number of players, the number of coaches, the number of staffs, it's unlike any other sport. And so right. much of it is practicing and, and, and being together. And the union, Demoris Smith, the leadership that he and his medical team showed with the with the NFL and our medical team, you know, people always say good things come out of these crises. And I think that that the two entities, the NFLPA and the NFL, really laid a, a foundational uh, part of, of the relationship of working together that, that was very positive uh, that came out of it. And there was really no conflict between the two at all during the season. And, and, and each entity was very focused on enforcing it. And, you know, the union never talked about the competitive equity issues because they felt that that there had been clarity in how the protocols were discussed. And, and we, we just knew going into the year there were, there were likely going to be some competitive equity issues, and there were. But I think overall it worked, it worked pretty well, and it was, it was a much closer to normal NFL season X the fans than I think most people expected. So I'm gonna ask both of you this question. Um, I cover primarily the NBA, as you both know. Uh, I could have make up an all-star team of NBA players that had COVID. I'd win the championship with Durant, Jokic, Jason Tatum, you know, Russell Westbrook, some of the biggest names in the sport. And in talking to them or listening to them, there does seem to be concern still about the long-term effects with this virus. Both of your sports, Dana, you had, of course, you had a number of players test positive. It was inevitable. Jonathan, there were a number of NFL players that tested positive. It's just inevitable in all of the sports. You, no one was going to have a 0% rate here. I wonder, uh, based on your research, your data, your, your connections to the medical community, do you have concerns about long-term effects for these athletes and you know, for the general public um, of COVID? Data, you can start. How's that? Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I- I'm sure you guys have seen this with, with friends and family, uh, people that you know that have had it. Some people had it and said, yeah, I had a headache. Right. And then some people are violently ill. I mean, it affects so many different people in different ways. And, you know, the hardest part for us is when one of our athletes contracts COVID, you know, th- we get the doctor involved, uh, you know, th- they do a full checkup on them and basically stay home and rest don't do anything uh, until you get cleared by the doctor. Some of these guys are, 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 are you know, maniacs and, and are, are jumping into the gym and, and training and, and doing these things and doing damage to themselves, you know, but they're grown men and women. You, you can't tell them what to do. They, they, they're going to do what they want to do. But yes, we've been all over this. It affects so many different people, different ways, but it's about taking care of yourself, doing what the doctor tells you to do and stop training, stop doing any type of physical activity, stay home and rest. Yeah, the, the, there's a sports performance doctor at Mass General named Aaron Baggish, who's a sports performance cardiologist. And early on, 
um, in the virus, he got some research funding, and because people thought there there were um, heart issues, heart right. issues right. with doing it. I don't know if his research is definitive. So this is, please, anyone listening, don't take this as a final answer. But I think that was coming out at a place that that there did not appear to be long-term cardiovascular issues. Um, and and Aaron, Aaron has done a tremendous amount of work with uh, the US Olympic team and an inordinate number of professional athletes. He understands the professional athletes cardiovascular system as a has a whole set of things he does specifically to to maximizing an individual's cardiovascular capability. And I think he was the right he would be the right type of person to look at this. And I'm gonna actually anybody who's interested in the work and who in, in medical science should look it up because I assume he will publish it when it's done. And I I believe that's where it was trending. I also think, you know, I can tell you that within the NFL, I can't speak obviously for the UFC, but within the NFL and MLS, obviously we had a number of people who had this. We we did not have anybody you know, that ended up on event. And I know of nobody on our teams and have heard no stories about people who are long haulers in either of those sports that are still having issues today. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I haven't heard it. I wonder just quickly, uh, Jonathan, as a follow-up, there was some talk that maybe Cam had some lingering effects of COVID that may have affected your season. Did you feel that way? I mean, <laughs> Look, Cam was just, you know, that was week three when, when right. he had it. I've asked Cam, you know, two weeks later how he felt. He said he felt great and I hadn't, I haven't pushed it with him. So I don't, I don't know the answer to that specifically, but I haven't heard it. Okay, great. So Dana, we press forward here. Our president says he wants everybody, expects that everybody will be vaccinated by the 4th of July. When does UFC start looking to build the arenas again. I'm back. I already sold out. I've already sold 33,000 tickets in, in less than five minutes at two different stadiums. Um, I'm at uh, UFC 261 is April 24th in Jacksonville. And back then right after that, I'm going to Houston, Texas. Yeah, that's my 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 uh, my, my thank you. Thank you note. Yeah, thank yeah, you note. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, and then I'm, I'm hoping that in July, uh, I, I will, uh, I will be in Vegas. Okay. And Jonathan, you know, Roger Goodell just said the other day that he expects to have full capacity in the NFL by the start of the season. That surprised me a little bit. That seemed a little ambitious based on state by state, you know, Dana can choose where he goes. Um, maybe you could have full capacity in Dallas, Texas. It seems surprising to me that that would happen, say in Foxborough, Massachusetts, for instance. I hope not. Look, if you're going to go by the numbers, Massachusetts for states with over 5 million population, I think is number one or number two in per capita uh, vaccination, percent of the population vaccinated. And I don't know why, it, if, if as our president says by July 4th, everyone's going to be vaccinated, you, you you should be able to have a full stadium in July. Uh, the, the, the data seems to be 
I don't want to keep going back to what I do. I'm not a doctor, but I talk to people in what I think is the finest hospital in the world on a regular basis. There appears there is no evidence at all that vaccinated people can transmit the virus, assuming they even get it. And a small percentage do. That is known. Um, but this all started because, meaning the lockdowns, the shutdowns, because we didn't know anything about the virus and right. we were afraid of overwhelming our healthcare system. And what that meant was overwhelming the ICUs, not people with small, you know, cold-like symptoms, but real respiratory issues where doctors, nurses couldn't take care of the volume of people in their ICUs or there weren't enough ven ventilators to do it and help people to recover. Our healthcare system since those early days in New York and New Jersey, I mean, there was a lot of talk over the summer that ICUs were going to be overwhelmed. They weren't. And that was pre-vaccinations. Uh, if you don't want to get vaccinated, that's your choice. And, you know, that's the beauty of this country. But once the vaccine is available to you, I think if you want to go back to a venue and go to an event, and once vaccines have been made available in a community for a long enough period of time where anybody who's wanted one could have gotten it and has um, reached, you know, two weeks past their second shot, just to take the outline point, then I don't know why you shouldn't be at full capacity. It's sort of intellectually dishonest to say, oh, we're going to be at a quarter percent of capacity, even though theoretically you have herd immunity in the local population. At some point, you have to get back to living your lives. If we didn't have a vaccine and or if it came out much later, but I mean, again, the NFL is going to be lucky, um, I believe, this year because, you know, President Biden has said April 19th, it's available to everybody in America. Clearly, there's a backlog. So let's say anybody who really wants it will have it by June 1st or June 15th. We're still two months out from the start of the NFL season. Great. Okay. One of the... Uh things too I wanted to just discuss. I think it's interesting. I, I, I did a little research trying to come into this panel about the numbers. Uh, Sports Business Journal says that the, uh, the loss of attendance, Jonathan, for the uh, NFL could result in somewhat of a loss of $4 billion from total revenue. Um, you, I think, Dana, you at one point said that you lost $100 million without a, a live audience. And yet both of you sports are going to be profitable this year, no? Yeah, I, listen, we 2020 was an incredible year for us. Right, it was, um, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, it was, you know, it's funny because yeah, we lost $115 million at the gates, but we still delivered 41 live events. And, um, you know, Fight Island was a massive success for us. UFC viewership on ESPN uh, was in the double digits while, you know, other sports properties were struggling and having trouble. Right. Um, we set the company record for the highest average number of pay-per-view buys per event. So because we were the only thing on, a fight that would have done 250,000 buys was doing a million or 900,000. So, uh, you know, Fight Pass, which is our subscription network, uh, that thing increased 41%. People are home looking for things to watch. Um, global sponsorship, we set a new world record, um, you know, for the company. Uh, the list goes on and on. I mean, I could bore you for an hour with all the, uh, the stats of, of, of how well we did in 2020. So 
where we were, you know, losing the gate, other parts of our business went off the charts and, and, uh, and offset the costs of, of, of the, uh, you know, losing that, that gate revenue. I, I think from an, from an NFL standpoint, Jackie, I think to say that the NFL as a whole was profitable last year is probably not accurate. I think what's okay. more accurate to say, but I understand your point, and that's our, our players, player compensation, without getting too technical about how the cap gets created, the cap for last year was set in December of 19. Right. And so by the time the pandemic had started, people had planned and signed contracts based on a number that that was no not going to be accurate. Right. right. And, and so we agreed with our players union uh, to basically hold what what would have been the cap. And and to think so last year we paid the players at a, at a cap number that was a pre-COVID number. And the, the players agreed with the league to the, the union agreed with the league that over this coming season and the following two, right. we would figure Stretch out it. the math to earn it back. So if you look at that whole period of time uh, as, as a block, I will, we'll end up where we would have been as a percentage of revenue, but we, we essentially bridged it last year. And, gotcha. and and that's the way that works. So I think your your premise is right, but technically not accurate related to those 12 months. Fair enough. All right, I'm gonna take some questions from the audience, which I guess I should have done a while ago, but you guys are so interesting. I had my own questions. How about this one? How has the pandemic affected talent identification and development in your respective sports? It's a good question, Dana. It's a great question. So the, what happens in, in, in my business is, a lot of people don't realize this, but there's small shows that happen every weekend all over the world where, you know, young up and coming fighters are developing, uh, you know, building records and all. None of that happened. It, it's, it's still really not happening right now. So it's, it's been over a year and um, it, it hasn't affected me yet, but it will absolutely affect my business in the next, uh, you know, two to three years. Okay. I think. From, um, from an NFL standpoint, uh, the, the ability, you know, for us being able to look at college players, our scouts were severely restricted this year, right. certain conferences and schools you could go look at. Uh, but a lot of what used to get done in person was done with, uh, you, you know, video and, and, a lot of in-person visits couldn't happen. The combine in Indianapolis, we have a couple of people there this week, but it's strictly a medical combine right. for the players that might have um, prior injuries that have to be looked at. And so I, I think it really has hurt. I, I think it really, really has hurt your ability to go out and try to get a competitive advantage if you think you have a proprietary way of spotting talent or talent that works mm -hmm. in your system that others don't know it, it definitely it, it definitely has been uh, it, it's it, it's definitely been a real issue but it's the same for all 32 teams so we all have to figure our our own way out of it but I would tell you last year and this year wouldn't be years that you wanted to be a kid who, would have been a rookie free agent or somebody else that just needed to be seen in person. You know, we didn't, 
Yeah, Julian Edelman. <laughs> right. It, no, there there are definitely people who probably could have had NFL careers in a normal year that will never have that opportunity. Yeah, that's a shame. So, um, so many things have changed due to COVID, some temporarily and others, we don't know if they're going to return. Are there any sports experience that you consider that will never come back due to COVID or perhaps something that you learned during COVID that you're going to retain going forward? Well, obviously, you know, one of the things that, that we learned about our business that I, I, I think I already kind of knew, listen, we went through a recession and uh, in, in eight and nine and, and our business, you know, just kept going like this. And we went through a global pandemic and we kept our, our business running. You know, the UFC model uh, can pretty much barrel through anything, um, you know, and obviously but you can... A year ago, a year and a half ago, you could ask me any question about my business. I could have answered anything you, you asked me. You know, when you run into something like this, there's so many things that are unknown. And I would have never thought in my lifetime that I would see Las Vegas shut down. Las right. Vegas was shut down. Casinos were closed. Uh, you know, all sports came to a screeching halt. There's just things that, that you know, that you could never imagine when you go into something like this. And uh you know, like, like we said at the beginning of this, this, this conference, I, I try to plow through everything. And we did. We did it. We did it. We went through this thing. We had a successful year. Um, we didn't lay off one employee. We didn't cut anybody's salaries. We didn't do any of that stuff. Um, I, I think I learned a lot about my, myself, about my staff, my fighters, and, and definitely our fans uh, through this recession and, and that the UFC can really work through anything. Yeah. You know, Jackie, I, I think that I, I don't know that there's going to be anything related to our businesses that don't come back as I'm racking my brain to have a witty answer. I, I don't have one. I think if you ask the, the coaches of our soccer and football teams, they would love for the press conferences to stay virtual. Um, <laughs> well, so I just I, I, I would just like to vote against that. Okay, I'm I, I, I was I wasn't saying where I stood on that. I was giving, uh, but where I, do you stand on that, Jonathan? <laughs> I, I hadn't thought about it till just this second, so I'm going to take time to continue thinking about it. But I, I, I look. I, I think people in the United States. I, I think it's come. I think anything that you did as a sports fan. Um, maybe things the way you do it might be a little different, but I think I don't see, I don't, I can't think of any activity that's going away. I just, I can't think of it. Okay. Um, Dana, question for you. How do you use analytics to identify lesser known fighters that could potentially become superstars in the UFC? Another great question. We're working on some stuff right now. A lot of this AI stuff mm -hmm. um, where you actually put the attributes of a fighter. They actually, they actually map the fighters, they put all their attributes in and it, it breaks down um, talent for you. We've been playing with this system for a little while that I think, uh, you know, when it's up and running, it'll be good for us, it'll be good for the NFL, the NBA. The, the, a lot of this AI stuff is pretty cool, but um, we, we have a whole, people probably wouldn't believe this, but we have a whole analytical team here that, you know, just fires off stats and numbers uh, to me about everything from, from fights, the things about the fans, um, you know, television, uh, you, you know, ratings and lead-ins and w this whole business, 
is, is runoff analytics. So very important to us, like I'm sure it is every other business. I wonder if you could give us a specific example of the AI, um, something in the AI realm that has really caught your eye, that's fascinated you. Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm completely fascinated by it. So I have them every time we're, we're heading into a fight, I'll pick two or three fights and I'll have the company that's, that's working on the AI tell me who's going to win. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and, and it's almost always right. It's only been wrong a couple of times. And obviously, there are things that AI will never be able to measure, like heart and determination and, and, and things that, you know, somebody who can dig down deep and, and, and uh, you know, and win because of, you know, they have that, that heart and that fire. But it's pretty damn good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with it. And it's, and it's not even where it's going to be in the next couple of years. Jonathan, I'm going to take a wild stab that that Kraft, that the Kraft family, and that the Patriots are also have their own AI data. Is that correct? We 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 have some AI people within our businesses. Yes. And what do you what what is there something about it in particular for you that's that's caught your eye? You know, well related to related to sports, I would say not as much on the competitive side today. Okay. I think you need football is when I heard Dana describe what he just did, I was thinking to myself, if you're Jason Robbins at DraftKings and you're setting a line and, and then somebody has an AI capability, I, <laughs> that, that gets into lots of interesting areas. Cause I know, I know what a big product the UFC now is for sports betters. but I, within our system, I think we're using artificial intelligence much more to look at other aspects of the business and 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 help us make decisions around pricing and and certain other fan engagement opportunities when it comes to the football side football, i i fully believe what dana just said because i see the power of it especially in our manufacturing businesses but with football, with 11 guys on the field at once, so many variables to manage right. and, and we're heart and determination. AI, look, analytics really matter uh, as part of the ingredient in making your decision. But pure AI, when there are 22 people on the field and a whole host of other variables, I think the, 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 uh, the, the ability to be highly predictive is is much more difficult, and I don't think the the science is there just yet. So it gets a little more diluted, is what you're saying with the with the amount. Yeah, I mean the R squared just isn't there on those types of analyses, just in in football. But but I think there are different things that that work, and th there are different things that can work as ingredients in into your overall decision making process, and I think it's how comfortable the ultimate decision maker on the football side is with that over their own sort of AI in their brain. And when you have somebody like Bill, you, you know, you're, you're really lucky because he, he has a pretty good brain on that front. Yeah, I think I've heard that actually. So um, when we look back on COVID, it's been a wild year plus, I think for everybody involved. Dana, you mentioned you learned a lot about yourself. I wonder if you could share with us one specific thing you learned about yourself through COVID. What was it that, that you thought, oh, all right, this is how I handled this. 
Yeah. I mean, besides, some, besides that video you sent out to the media, which I enjoyed. <laughs> I, I knew you'd like that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, you know, through this thing, the, 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 the were, there were times where, you know, you question yourself. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong? Am I wrong here? Is this wrong? Am I, am I, you know, and uh, through that whole thing, I had about a, I was never forget it. I was sitting out by my pool. I just hung up the phone again with my lawyer and he was telling me, we just got shut down again. We, we can't go here. And then, and then, you know, I'm looking at the rest of the world and everybody's like, all right, you know what? I'm not going to go to work. We're going to sit home and listen, I got a pretty nice house. Uh, I could, I could have sat home and, and uh, you know, relaxed and enjoyed my family and, and hung out like everybody else did. It just didn't make sense to me. It didn't, it, you know, and, and when, when, when you weigh the good with the bad, yeah, sure, could I sit home, whatever, but can the 30% of my staff that I'm going to have to lay off, people that I might have to let go that have been with me since day one, uh, you know, what about their families? What about, you know, paying their mortgage? What about paying their car payments? What about taking care of their kids? These are all things when you're a guy, a guy who's in my position that you have to factor in. So when I look at, does this make sense to not go? Absolutely, it does not make sense to not try to figure this out and battle through this because I'm going to hurt a lot of people that I care about and a lot of people that, that, have, that have worked hard for me over the last 20 years. It's my job and it's my obligation to figure this out. That was what I learned about myself through this thing. Jonathan, you had a large team, but I wonder too, you, you know, if there was something specific that you learned or something that you learned perhaps maybe one of your players or or even Bill Belichick who probably went through one of the more difficult years of his career. I didn't learn anything about Bill. Uh, <laughs> no, no, not that I didn't already know. But I, I think, I, you know, Dana, that was just, yeah, that added, you see, that's the right attitude. And for us, look, he, he runs the whole sport. He's the commissioner. He, he, He's, he's everything. It's him. It's embodied in him. When you're in the NFL or MLS, you're, you're part of a collective. There's, it's, it's a lot more complicated to get going. But we had a similar attitude, which was much like Dana, we're very fortunate. We, <laughs> you could have sent people home. You could have laid people off. You could have done a lot of things. We said early on, we sent a note to our team members. And we said, look, you're good through this thing. We're, we, we got you covered. We're going to try to do what we can, though, as an organization, because a lot of our people did have to sit at home. It was the state regulation. The businesses weren't operating. But we tried to figure out how we could take our assets. I mean, the very visible example was the airplane that went to China. And you know, I had been fortunate being in the hospital to see firsthand how the mask issue was real. And when our governor called, that was an easy one. I mean, you know, like my dad and I were like high-fiving each other because that was such a cool thing to get working on and, and, and to get going. But then we used Gillette Stadium in a whole host of different ways. We were the largest drive-through testing site in the state. Our employees volunteered a bunch of them to come work and help organize it. They were, they were getting paid. They could have stayed home if they wanted. Um, we're, we're the largest vaccination site right now. Same, same exact thing. We packed over 5 million meals here. We stored food, packed meals for vets who were food insecure. 
we did a bunch. I, I, I don't mean to make it, but our employees were like, we like to do that. We're so excited that our organization is doing that. And, and so we used the building. We used our parking lots for entertainment activities, for, for graduations, to help people get through it. And, and our employees came out and, and repurposed. And it was sort of the same sentiment that, that Dana just said, not around the core business itself, but taking the assets of the business, starting with the people and then the physical assets that we have and, and trying to put them to work. And that was really fun to do. And, and, and I think it helped people get through the year and feel good and feel optimistic uh, and also pass the time more quickly. And, and I actually forgot to say that, you know, I, I was going to say, you know, I, I've been very fortunate to be friends with the crafts for many years. I'm a huge Patriots fan too. And, you know, not only are they the type of people that are taking care of their own employees and, and the people who are with them, they're taking care of as many people as they possibly can, you know, in, in their hometown, in their state. One of the greatest American families of all time. Just incredible human beings and great people. And, and I meant to say that, Jonathan. Congratulations. Uh, Danny, you're I can't say thank enough you. good things about you and your family. Thank you. Thank you. We're very fortunate. Anyhow, thank you. Well, I think we're just going to end on that note. What a love fest we're having here today <laughs> at Sloan Analytics Conference. Thank you both for your time and your thank insights. You. And uh, I enjoyed it. It was a very excellent panel. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. It was Thanks, nice Jackie. Meeting. Thanks, guys. See you, buddy. Bye. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.